What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Albatrosses do it. Flying foxes do it. Even crabs do it. But biologists have never come up with a convincing explanation for why homosexual behavior is so widespread in nature. One researcher, instead of asking why, asks, why not? And there's not a lot of love for the practice of dubbing, pasting a voice actor's lines into a foreign film rather than adding subtitles. But our correspondent reckons dubbing is an art form unto itself, and it's staging a comeback all over the world. First up, though. On Friday, America killed Iran's top military commander, Qasem Soleimani, in an airstrike. The assassination was tantamount to an act of war and will have profound consequences for the region. The fallout is only beginning to be felt. Yesterday, the Iraqi parliament passed a resolution calling for foreign troops to leave the country, and Iran announced it would no longer comply with the restrictions imposed by the 2015 nuclear deal. Its leaders have vowed harsh revenge on America. As hundreds of thousands of mourners filled the streets to pay their respects to General Soleimani, Iranian MPs chanted, Death to America, in Parliament. President Donald Trump has warned against retaliation, threatening 52 Iranian targets. Until now, the long conflict between America and Iran has mostly been fought through proxies, spies, and sanctions. But this strike was a dangerous escalation that could mark a turning point in the Middle East. This is undoubtedly the single most important thing America has done in the Middle East since the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Shashank Joshi is our defense editor. It's an incredibly provocative act, and it is likely to have extremely significant ramifications, both for the relationship between the US and Iran, but also for America's standing across the Middle East. And what do you think the Trump administration was actually hoping to achieve with this? The Trump administration was probably fed up. They were fed up with Qasem Soleimani and the Quds forces, the Quds force being Mr. Soleimani's organization, their support for Iraqi militia groups that were wounding and killing American troops and American forces. They were fed up with the Quds forces networks of influence across the Middle East, their support and sponsorship for groups like Hezbollah, for the Houthis in Yemen, for other militias and rebel organizations making life difficult for America and its allies. But I think President Trump's pride was probably wounded by the attack on an Iraqi base on December 27th and by the subsequent siege of the U.S. embassy that followed. But there were events last year that might have provoked such a dramatic response, and yet Mr. Trump and his administration didn't do anything. That's right. In fact, it's perhaps more surprising that he would assassinate a senior Iranian official for this while not doing anything in response to what we saw in September, which was a major suspected Iran-backed attack on oil fields in Saudi Arabia. There was no 
overt American response to that. Before that, in the summer, Iran shot down an American drone and Mr. Trump ordered an airstrike and then called it off. And I think he may have felt that he looked weak, he may have lost face, and that this very dramatic reaction was probably a overcompensation for some of his passivity last year. And on behalf of both the Trump administration and the Iranian regime, there's been a lot of hard talk. I mean, how do you think Iran will respond in the long run? It probably doesn't want an open confrontation. It has a relatively weak conventional military force. What it's perfected over the years is asymmetric tactics. Now, some of these are pretty well understood. We have seen missiles flying from Yemen, probably given to the Houthi rebel group by Iran, into Saudi Arabia, into the Gulf states. And those kind of low-level missile attacks and harassment of American personnel in Iraq, of American allies in the region, those are all tried and tested methods that Iran has been thinking about over the years. I don't think that will be enough for Iran on this occasion. I think we're also likely to see Iranian abductions, perhaps executions of individual American officials, diplomats, intelligence officers, but also business people, oil workers. I think we're going to see a full-blown Iranian campaign intended to drive America out of the Middle East. And that in turn would suggest that perhaps more American troops would be sent in to protect against this, to respond to that. I mean, Mr. Trump campaigned on reducing the American presence in the Middle East. This kind of looks like a miscalculation. That's right. Even before this move, he was already going back on his pledges. He had said in October, going into the Middle East is the worst decision ever made. But since May, he put in 14,000 additional troops into the region. So in some ways, he was being dragged into the Middle East anyway. And I think this is going to pull him in even further. The exception, of course, is Iraq, where Iraq's parliament has already passed a non-binding resolution to expel US troops. And I think it's inevitable now we're going to see the slow, gradual departure of those forces that arrived after 24. So you think America will actually reduce its presence in Iraq? Donald Trump has said in his characteristic style he won't do so unless Iraq pays him. He said, we spent billions building up this base. We're not leaving unless they pay us back for it. Of course, that would be illegal in international law, and I think better sense would probably prevail. But I think within a couple of years, are we still going to see U.S. forces in Iraq? I would have thought probably not. And another immediate response from Iran is claiming that it will no longer follow the terms of the nuclear agreement. What do you make of that? This is also a big deal. We're now in a position where Iran has progressively shrugged off every single nuclear restriction imposed by that deal on the quantity of uranium, the purity of that uranium, how fast it can enrich all of that stuff. What I would say is that Iran has been very careful, though. It hasn't formally pulled out of the deal. It doesn't want to give Europeans an excuse to side with Donald Trump. And very importantly for everyone, I think, it hasn't suspended inspections, which means that the International Atomic Energy Agency, the world nuclear watchdog, continues to inspect Iran to a greater degree than any other country. Of course, what that means is if the situation continues to deteriorate, Iran might still take that option. It can still speed up enrichment. It can still kick out inspectors. And of course, the most dramatic option for Iran would be to withdraw from the non-proliferation treaty, which is the treaty that bans the production of nuclear weapons. All of that could absolutely come later this year if we see escalation. But Iran is deliberately leaving itself room to go there down the line if it needs. Which is to say that the nuclear deal, which sort of has kept things calm, there's still a chance that it could be revived? 
In theory, in practice, I think probably not. Not if US-Iran relations are going down the road they're headed. Donald Trump pulled out of the nuclear deal in May 2018 in the hope of bludgeoning Iran into economic submission and getting a better deal. Instead, it set in motion a chain of events that we've seen until today. The Iranian attacks on international shipping, the missile attacks on Saudi Arabia, and now the cycle of escalation that has led to the assassination of Soleimani. So what we're likely to end up with is instead of a better deal, a dramatically sped up Iranian nuclear program that will push us towards a crisis later this year. So all things considered, how do you think the Trump administration should have dealt with this, with these sort of unchecked aggression from Iran, the continued adventurism in the whole region? There was something to be done. Well, I think there's a lesson from Iran here, which has responded in gradual and limited fashion. I think in a similar way, America could have taken smaller, more gradual, more cautious steps. By leaping straight to the assassination of a senior Iranian official, America has alienated even many of its allies in the region. So, for example, could it have gone after more junior personnel under Qasem Soleimani rather than the general himself? Could it have gone after Iraqi militias in more subtle, cautious ways? Could it have done all of that while easing sanctions on Iran in order to try and lure it back into a process of talks to stabilize its nuclear program? I think the answer is yes. But ever since Donald Trump withdrew from the nuclear deal, he has had only one lever to pull, and that is ever more pressure on Iran. That will continue, and we are going to get into a much worse exchange at some point in the next weeks or months. Shushank, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise. Where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem. Where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. There's plenty of behavior in the animal world that's hard for biologists to explain. My colleague Edward McBride recently spoke to a researcher who's got an intriguing theory that may explain one enduring zoological mystery. When it comes to sexual behavior, the animal kingdom is a broad church. Its members indulge in a wide variety of activities, including with creatures of the same sex. Female albatrosses often will pair off and raise their young together in the same nests. Bone-in flying foxes, which are a type of bat, the males will engage in genital licking when they're hanging in their perches. Male box crabs have been observed linked together in mating for days at a time. And when scientists have pulled up Humboldt squids in their nets, they've found that the males often have packages of sperm that males deposit in mating attached to them as well as the females. Julia Monk is a graduate student at Yale University and the lead author of a new paper on how same-sex behavior evolved in animals. Instead of asking why such behavior exists, Julia and her team of researchers began with the question, why not? We've seen same-sex behavior recorded in over 1,500 animal species, from invertebrates to vertebrates, including mammals. And it's really widespread throughout the animal kingdom. And how normally do scientists explain that kind of behavior in evolutionary terms? 
Some of them posit that there's some sort of indirect benefits to same-sex behavior. They might contribute to the fitness or the production of offspring of relatives of the individual engaging in the behavior. Some say it's because the genes that code for this behavior might have other benefits. There are a couple of different ideas put forward, but common to all of them are the assumptions, first of all, that same-sex behavior evolved independently in each of these species researchers are studying. So they're trying to explain it freshly in each species in which it's found. And then also implicit in these different explanations is the assumption that the costs of this behavior are high. So there has to be some greater benefit that would explain why it would persist despite its high evolutionary costs. Right. And so you think both of those ideas are wrong. You have a different hypothesis. Can you explain that? Yeah. So we wanted to question both of those assumptions. And we have put forward the hypothesis that, in fact, indiscriminate sexual behavior is the ancestral condition for sexually reproducing animals that have separate sexes. So in the beginning, animals didn't have the ability to really distinguish between different sexes, and they were out there just trying to mate or engage in sexual behavior with different individuals they came across. And that was likely good enough (laughs) for having reproduction be successful in many cases. And that only later when species have evolved more sexual polymorphism, which means that sexes look different from each other or have other differences like chemical signaling or size or shape or color that allow individuals to distinguish between different sexes, you get maybe more targeting of different sex behavior. But we're arguing that In fact, unlike has been previously assumed, the costs of same-sex behavior are not that high, so it likely has persisted from that ancestral state and continues to be prevalent to this day simply because it doesn't harm most animals in an evolutionary sense as long as they're also engaging in different sex behavior. Okay, so so I understand the thesis that same-sex behavior in animals used to be the norm rather than evolving independently in a variety of different species. But explain how you came to this idea. What was wrong with the points that you mentioned that underpinned the previous assumption that same-sex behavior was somehow an aberration? In evolutionary biology, generally when you see a trait that's really widespread across many distantly related animal lineages, you tend to at least consider the idea that that trait is ancestral, meaning that it existed in the most recent common ancestor to all of those different animal species. And to our knowledge, no one had really considered that hypothesis for same-sex behavior, even though you would if it were any other trait. And that really led us to believe that it was perhaps some human cultural biases that were preventing people from considering things that way rather than stemming from the actual biology. Okay. What made you challenge the idea that the evolutionary cost of same-sex behavior must be high? So the reason that people have assumed that the costs of same-sex behavior are high are because animals are expending time, energy, and resources engaging in that behavior when they could be engaging in behavior that would more obviously lead to reproduction. However, animals do a lot of different things that don't seem to directly contribute to reproduction. And so we reasoned that there's no reason that same-sex behavior should be any more costly than any of those other times that sexual behavior doesn't immediately result in reproduction. And in fact, people have done studies looking at different instances of different types of sexual behaviors, including some sexual behavior with other species in insects, and showed that they still had equally as high reproductive success as individuals that were not engaging in those seemingly costly behaviors. 
it's a really fascinating theory, but is there a way to test it? Yeah. So it's always really hard to test hypotheses that relate to sort of deep evolutionary time, especially when we're talking about behavior, because a lot of the time behavior is not preserved in the fossil record. And one of our biggest challenges right now to testing our hypothesis is that we don't really have a good understanding of how many species or which species engage in same-sex behavior. But there may be some evolutionary modeling that we can do to test out the hypotheses about costs and benefits and what outcomes you can get when you have these different costs and benefits and original states. When you lay out your thesis, it sounds supremely logical and it makes you wonder why no one has ever made the case that you're making before. Do you think that's that cultural bias you were talking about showing? Yeah, I do. And to be clear, I think some people didn't want to consider this possibility. And I also think some people are very happy to consider it once we put it forward, but it just didn't quite occur to them to think about it that way. Heterosexuality in humans is part of dominant culture, and that might have really influenced the way that people have thought about what the default is or what the baseline is and may have led researchers to extend that not just from humans, but to assuming that different sex behavior or what we could call animal heterosexuality is the baseline, which then defines what you consider abnormal or something specialized instead of maybe thinking about things from a much more neutral way. And I think it's not a coincidence that my co-authors and I met through a queer science group on Twitter. That's definitely influenced some of the perspective that we bring to this study. Do you imagine that there's similar examples of groupthink that's preventing scientists from considering possibly quite obvious hypotheses in, in other areas? How widespread a problem do you think this might be? You know, scientists are people, and just like anyone else, we're really influenced by our culture, our context, and I think that really determines the way we interpret our results, the questions we ask, where we even think to look for evidence. We're starting to understand more and more how scientists really should be thinking about their cultural perspective, their personal perspectives, as an important component of the type of science that they're doing. That's really, really interesting, Julia. Thank you so much for taking the time to explain it all to us. Oh, yeah, thank you. For years, moviegoers' preferred way for foreign language films to be translated has been with subtitles. The alternative, using a voice actor's words to overlay the original, has long been derided. I believe in America. Wierzę w America. Dorobiłem się tu majątku. But dubbing is on the rise. Dubbing used to be associated, at least in the English-speaking world, with either really poor quality or with people who were sort of too lazy to read subtitles. Lane Green writes Johnson, our column on language. But... It turns out that dubbing may be coming to your pocket or your local content consumption device. And why is that? Why are we going to see more of it? Well, big content producers, and in particular Netflix, are producing lots more shows and films in places around the world where they're finding great talent, where the production costs are a lot lower. These shows actually tend to be quite popular in English-speaking markets. It turns out, although a lot of people say they don't want dubbing, that, that they really do, that a large number of people either choose dubbing only or they choose some mix of dubbing and subtitles. And those two groups together are a majority, a large majority of Anglophone viewers. I mean, for my own part, I find dubbing actually more distracting than reading subtitles. 
A bad dub is distracting, and this is exactly what the pros will tell you. If you notice the dub, it's not very good. Ideally, it should kind of disappear. After a while, you might notice it at the very beginning, but after a while, if it's done artfully, you will stop noticing it, and you'll just accept that the voices you hear are the actual voices of the people on the screen. So you say it's better when it's done artfully, as, as if there are more than one way to do it. Some countries have gotten very good at this. They've been doing it since before the Second World War. Places like Italy and Germany have Oscar-style prizes for dubbing quality. So they've been doing it for a while, and they take this procedure very seriously. And there are other pretty firmly established national traditions in this. And one is called lecturing, which is kind of unusual. It's in Russia and Poland, where you have one voice reading all of the dialogue in a sort of louder voice. And then you hear the original, say the original English or French, underneath. So it's being spoken, and then it's kind of like having a UN interpreter explaining what's going on very emotionlessly in your ear. So, Jason, to illustrate these different styles of dubbing, our producer and I have come up with the idea of having you read a passage of Italian, in fact, a very famous one from Dante's Inferno, and we're going to dub it in some of the different national styles that we have discussed today. So why don't you take away those first three lines in Italian for us? Nel mezzo del cammino di nostra vita, mi ritrovai per una selva oscura e la derita via era smarrita. You can tell me how bad my Italian is. Molto bene, grazie. Uh, and in that, in English, for those of you whose 14th century Italian is a bit rusty, it says, Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. So if we did this in the Polish and Russian style, we'd have a single voice reading over the lines of all of the different characters. It would sound perhaps something like this. Nel mezzo del Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. One other really interesting example of film, a big epic called Bahubali, it was made simultaneously with the same actors in Tamil and Telugu. So the two actors took their lines and every scene in both languages, so everyone had to speak both. With the magic of editing, we can just take the same actor doing the same lines, but in a different language. Nel mezzo del camin di nostra Just like this. I found myself within a forest dark for the straightforward pathway had been lost. And what about the, the voice actors themselves? I've heard that they, they become kind of lo- local heroes. They become so strongly associated with the actors that they're dubbing for that they become personalities themselves. Right. Well, you can't have the voice of, say, Arnold Schwarzenegger changing from film to film. Fans in Germany expect the same voice. And they don't get Schwarzenegger's voice, by the way. He has a very strong Austrian accent, which would be completely the wrong voice, even if he wanted to do his own dubbing, which he presumably doesn't. But a guy called Thomas Donneberg has done Schwarzenegger's voice since 1979. This same guy also does Sylvester Stallone, he did Rucker Hauer, he's just done Dennis Quaid, John Cleese. I mean, a, a huge variety of different actors. Now, you're wondering at this point that Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger appeared together in The Expendables. And they even have a few scenes of sort of banter, tough guy banter together. Well, Thomas Dunnenberg does both voices. He just does them slightly differently so that you can tell it's two different people speaking. Big Barney Ross. We got wrench mouse. Was machst du hier? Um Arbeit beten? Wer weiß. Warst du krank? Du hast Gewicht verloren. Fans of Harry Potter might remember that we got a new actor for Dumbledore in the third of the eight films that came out. Well, in Germany, uh, Harry Potter himself got a new voice in the third film. And that's because Daniel Radcliffe, the English actor who played Harry Potter, his voice had started to break. His dubbing voice in Germany had not started to see his voice break. And so they had to get another actor whose voice had indeed uh, started to deepen. So that guy lost the job. The guy who took over did the final six films and has since become quite a big dubbing star in his own right. 
You say that the, the voice double for Arnold Schwarzenegger has been in the business for for decades. This is the business hasn't changed much. Will it? Is this always the way it will be? There are a couple of technological innovations on the horizon. Essentially, the same technology that produces what we call deep fakes, where you can appear to be making Barack Obama say something outrageous. You can take the actor's face and record it from various angles and then sync up the mouth movement so it looks exactly like they're speaking Italian or Arabic. With perfect lighting and the actor sitting down and lots of cameras, this is very easy, but it's a lot more difficult when the actor's moving around and face angle is changing and stuff like that. The other thing which is interesting is I mentioned that people want to hear the same voice for, say, Arnold Schwarzenegger in film after film. Well, a new technology makes it possible for an actor to record those lines but then for that recording in, say, German to be given the sort of timbre and the voice of, of Arnold Schwarzenegger himself. So these guys may not have a lock on their uh, superstars like they have in the past. Lane, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.